about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, um, myself and Louise Koopmans interview Gunter Vogt. Louise uh, was a student here at the time in our uh, landscape course, and she's now a graduate, having received the Portfolio Prize for her work. While Gunter is an eminent landscape designer and chair of landscape at ETH Zurich, he views landscape design not as an autonomous discipline, but as a careful reassembly of the world. In his methods, he stresses the productive tension between the necessary subjectivity of the human condition and the availability of scientific analysis and process. In talking with his students, he observes that a field trip can be at once a sensorial immersion and a scientific appraisal and posits a work method that includes space for digression, memory and dreaming, along with a rigorous engagement with the realities of contemporary ecology and construction. In this conversation, We range widely and it encompasses everything from his own um, early steps to becoming a landscape designer to his views on the changing role of this profession in the face of climate change, but also the increasing urbanity, particularly of the European context. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Gunter Vogt, professor indeed, Mm -hmm. Uh, you're very welcome to the Kingston School of Art. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I think you're the first person from Liechtenstein that we've had. It's very easy since we are only 36,000 people. So we are a very rare species in the world. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, maybe we start with this uh, childhood then. I mean, what point did you think you might want to become a landscape architect? Yeah, it's a beautiful landscape. It's uh, in the pre-Alps of uh, Switzerland, I would say. It's a beautiful landscape, very historical with ruins from the history and a a very interesting vegetation. So I started when I was nine years old. So my my mother brought me in contact with a scientific group of botanists. So that was my starting point. And it's like in tennis or in football, if you start very early, like let's say with nine years, with when you are 16 years old, you are a kind of a super talent. You are a kind, everybody is saying, ah, oh, he's so talented, but it's just, it was a uh, childhood experience. So to get in contact with this uh, scientific botanist, it's very easy. And if, if you are talented in football or tennis and you start when you are six or seven, <laughs> so you're very good when you're 16. For sure. Although if I met a botanist when I was six or seven, I doubt if I would turn out to be Gunter Vogt, right? So there are other things at work here. I mean, what compelled... I mean, we all, if we're all familiar with that kind of story about the 10,000 hours, which I find mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. cynical dry way of looking at Mm. people who are gifted and talented because before the 10,000 hours there's this love or something Mm. that compels you to put in the 10,000 hours right Mm. and what I'm interested in is before you met the botanist before you engaged with that or was that activated something in you or were you looking at things interested in things yeah I really had a a very specific experience so when I was six years old that's I have to say I don't know it by myself. It's from my mother. She told me when I was six years old, uh, then there was a group of gardeners just uh, doing a renovation or uh, our garden. Then I was every day looking on these people working in the gardens and I was extremely interested when they were sitting around a drawing, a piece of paper and discussing and then everybody knew what to do. And I really told my mother, I really want to do this job. And I'm definitely not interested in craftsmanship. Really super untalented in craftsmanship. I really wanted to do this job with... I was really fixed or focused on the drawing. And what is behind this drawing? And this group of people discussing and agreeing what to do next. But this is coming from my mother. I didn't know it. So she told me before I wanted to become a teacher as everybody or a fireman or whatever. But then from this moment on, I wanted to become, uh, to do this job, not knowing what it means, what it really is as a job. And you studied in high school and then did you, where did you study formally? 
in Switzerland. So we, there are only two schools for landscape architecture. One is close to to Zurich in a very beautiful landscape, and the other one is close to Geneva. And at first I wanted to study botany, but then I looked at it and I saw, okay, you learn more and more, and in the end you are one of these person. You can only find three or four persons all over Europe knowing all these specific things. So, and in the end you are really alone with your knowledge. What are you doing with this knowledge? And then I found out it's more interesting for me to combine it with design or this kind of urban approach was really the the key point for me. It it took a long time to find out what to do finally. And I think today for young people it's even more difficult to find out what is my future. Because today I would never do this job because it is only computer works. But in the old days it was really drawing and making models and nowadays it's more or less a a digital, digital job. And I would never do it today again. Although you don't work in a digital way, and your practice no, doesn't work no. in a digital way. Yes, but I really have to fight with my colleagues that I really learn to to have a discussion in the beginning about what are we interested in, what is our focus on this specific project, and then to design every project in a model. And what I saw here in your university, it's quite amazing the equipment you have and the model workshop is on such a good level compared to the ETH, by the way. <laughs> it's much better. And the ETH is very proud to say uh, architecture, so we are, we are designing with models and so on, but compared to what I saw today, it's nothing what we have. It's really, it's quite impressive. Well, um, it's nice to know that we have a few things better than the ETH. <laughs> um, because you work with models yeah. in your firm, what do you feel that these models translate into a design which cannot be done through technology? I think, first of all, for these young people, it's important to have a kind of real experience. So sometimes we have students working so in the model workshop and saying, but I'm getting dirty. And then I'm saying, but this is reality. And I had just this experience coming back from a a field trip with my students in Marseille. They are really (coughs) to walk in a city, and of course it's a long walk, but it's not very difficult. They all have problems. After half an hour, I'm tired, it's hot, and I need some water. And so they don't have real experiences. And the model making is one aspect, and the field trip is the other one. So, so to get real experiences. So you cannot design landscape without real experiences and translate it through the model into a, an idea or into a project. You also feel that by producing this model, they get a better spatial awareness mm. that they could find different outcomes rather than working in a 2D format? Yeah, the problem is with these digital medias they have, they completely lose the aspect of scale. <coughs> what scale do, is your project relating to? So, I mean, working here, let's say in London, you always relate to, relate to the green belt. And <coughs> it's always a question, or even here in, in London, we always relate to history, to and mapping is uh, very important for us, but in a way <coughs> we need this real experience and model making. And model making means it's a kind of reality and for us a landscape is a model and a model is a landscape. We are not saying that the model is not reality, it's a kind of reality we are producing through the models. And of course it's in a different scale. And compared to architecture, the problem is <coughs> the architecture is like dealing with an object. You can c- control it in terms of design because it's an object. <coughs> and it's, uh, you put your, your building to a model in the, the context and you can control it. But landscape is very difficult to control because 
you have the open sky and you have the process of growing dying <coughs> it's it's really there is a difference to uh, to architecture and through model making it's, it makes it easier to to work with this landscape it's an interesting one where the three of us here are probably each separated by the same length of time probably mm-hmm. about a decade and a half apart mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I, I agree and I sometimes wonder am I being sentimental? Like I love the model because, and I love the physical thing mm. because I can see multiple things in it at the same time. So a model at one level could be a very direct exploration, mm. but then you could blur your eyes and it becomes, well, what if that's an entire landscape or something like that? And I find that kind of discursive way of non-thinking, almost mm. meditative, mm. really quite lovely whereas when I'm in a, a situation where the screen is illuminated from behind and I'm scrolling in and scrolling out it produces mm. a more frenetic kind of output oriented work method I just want to be productive but I tend not to make those kind of lateral jumps and I'm just wondering as the youngest person here I mean is that a hopelessly outdated way of looking at things or is that something that I mean why are so many of your colleagues making models and you making models and making drawings also is that because we tell you to or my personal experience is through model making, especially with landscape, because I'm one of the few landscape yes. students here, <laughs> um, is that we obviously deal with levels and topography and you just, because it's a very immersive subject mm-hmm. and you're trying to create these experiences, you cannot do that in a 2D yeah. method and as well through making it, you're adding a layer, mm-hmm. you're building up, it's also kind of leveling mm-hmm. yourself up or walking up a, up a mountain or hill and through building you you even by physically just adding mm-hmm. that you also mm-hmm. have that physical reality of making and doing maybe mm. it's a way of seeing it's a way of yeah mm. thinking through making i guess or yeah. experiencing in my case and in your case gunther was that something then that the school you that taught you in instilled in you, or was that something that you developed from the ground up? How did you do No, that? it was a very, yeah, so I had some professors coming from the ETH, and there it was a real tradition to build models. And there I learned it uh, that it's if you work with topography, you need a model to understand it. And I think landscape architecture is. You see all these renderings. Just this morning I showed some uh, rendering of a project in Marseille where you see a huge river and uh, trees and everything around. And I told them, listen, this this is all fake because this grass is growing in the pampa of Argentina. The the tree (laughs) would never grow here. The river is much too big because it's con- completely controlled and it's just fake. And that's a problem, things that uh, architecture, for instance, you can do everywhere, in London, Hong Kong, New York, Zurich, wherever. Landscape is uh, very different to, to architecture. This because landscape has a lot to do with culture as well. It's not only the uh, change of climate and the uh, different uh, trees and so on. It's really a cultural understanding. It's very important. If you take, for instance, England, you know, <coughs> with my colleagues to have French and English people in the office, it's really, if they talk about landscape, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Even uh, in Europe, we have these differences, and Germany, but the real difference is France and England. The understanding and what is, when we are talking about landscape, is completely different and it's really a cultural, landscape is something cultural, it's not only about biology or nature or so on, it's really a cultural construction and that's important to understand and then a model really helps as a a medium to discuss with my colleagues coming from completely different background. For instance, we have around 50 people in all offices, but no Swiss people, <laughs> mainly women. And so it's a, but it's very helpful, especially with this women approach to this understanding of, of processes. So it's not uh, as static as in architecture, for instance. And women are really are much closer to, to understand uh, this process, this aspect of a process in a landscape. It, it is very true, isn't it, that architecture goes through these 
stylistic paroxysms. And a lot of the great errors of architecture have been the quest for universal style or Mm. universal language. Mm. Um, Whereas landscape, of course, no matter how one might try, Mm. that's not possible within the realm of of landscape, Mm. which is a great resistance to have, actually. Mm. Mm. Um, And actually, the cases where the isms of architecture have been saved or they've produced meaningful places, it's been Mm. in their juxtaposition with profound... Mm profoundly different landscapes. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of North African modernism or mm-hmm. uh, Brazilian modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's interesting. So the theoretical substrate, and I'm saying this now as somebody who isn't and who is relatively ignorant of mm-hmm. landscape discourse, how do those trends move through landscape design? I'm thinking of, say, singular figures like Yves Brunier and others mm. who make these compelling images in these compelling landscapes and yourself and others. Mm. Is it, so I'm guessing what I'm going is, is landscape architecture one grounded in territories and individuals mm. as opposed to styles and discourses that move across borders? Or is that too simplistic to say? Yeah, when you mentioned Brunier, when I saw, uh, when I was a student, I saw his models and I really know some people who worked with him. He was a very interesting figure. So he was working in Omar's office and he was really a very special person and he created these models. And the models are beautiful, but when you see reality, <coughs> it's not so good because his knowledge about plants and how can you... That's a problem in landscape architecture. You have all disciplines, social social sciences, um, uh, natural sciences, and design. And to bring all together, it's extremely difficult. And I think that's a problem in landscape architecture today. And compared to architecture, there it's much easier. If you design something in architecture, you can say, okay, I would like to have a table uh, with wood, and so you go to the carpenter, and then he's showing you, yeah, do you want to have it uh, massive, or you, do you want to have chestnut or oak? But you cannot go to a nursery, they will tell you, but we have thousand different plants. No, you have to translate it, and that's a bit a problem uh, now, especially with this international style. And I, for me, for instance, the model is so interesting because we never do renderings. We always make photos from the model. It leaves you a kind of inspiration to mm. think further on as a, to perceive it. And then what do you see? And uh, then it's much more open to, to discuss. So, for instance, as lately, so, uh, uh, we were part of a competition in Hong Kong and I saw the renderings. And I was, it's really nice, you know, you have uh, linden, oak trees and so, but it's in Hong Kong. What do you mean? I would expl- expect tropical trees. Yeah, but it looks nice. And then say, but it's not reality. It's just a rendering. It's, it's nice in England or in Europe, but not in Hong Kong, because it's a different climate. And people are just relating to this... Um, Rendering, and it's a kind of reality, but a, a model is not reality, it is a model. But the landscape itself is, for me, a model as well. So it can be as it is, but it can be changed as well. And you see it through the climate change. Mm. In many countries, in Switzerland, it's extremely strong, whereas the landscapes are changing. So we have palm trees in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. It will change the landscape within 20 years completely. Completely. We will get a completely new landscape, and it's not this typical Swiss alpine south side and a good climate. This landscape, it will be a completely different landscape. But that's reality, and uh, that's... uh, that's related to climate change, for instance. And there, for me, it's much easier to understand since process. And I showed my students, for instance, <coughs> Switzerland only exists because all the glacier melt. So otherwise, Switzerland mm-hmm. wouldn't exist. It would be a, <laughs> a landscape 100 meters thick comp- covered by ice. And then I showed them the, the students the last 300,000 years. And you see, 6,000 years ago, uh, 
back from now, Venice arrived. Mm. And everybody in Italy will tell you Venice, Venice is a very old city, but it's only 6,000 years, and it's because of this melting glacier. Before it was just a little town in a swamp land, and then through the smelting, it was a city in, in the Mediter- Mediterranean. But everybody will tell you it's a very old city, but it's a very young city. Only in this time, I don't know, London, there were only uh, already 50,000 people. Not much, but it was really a big city compared to this little town or village like Venice. But it only appeared or is in the middle of the Mediterranean because of the ice melting. And that's interesting to understand these processes. And we are part of a very long process. Nowadays, we can really see it. The season is cha- uh, the climate is changing. That's really, for me, uh, extremely dramatic in the landscape, how the climate is changing and, and in relation to landscape. On the topic of climate change, um, looking at your various processes, you seem to address climate change in some of them, mm-hmm. but it's never at the forefront. Is there a reason why you don't place that projected long-term scale at the forefront? I'm doing it, but <coughs> not in the project, but in with my students. For instance, last semester we... We asked them to build dams in the Alps, not to produce energy, but to keep uh, drinking water back. And even in Switzerland, we have a problem to have enough uh, drinking water in summertime because it's not snowing in wintertime. So there you have a kind of storage of water. And we will have to build really huge dams to keep rainwater back. And this will change the landscape dramatically. And and until now, the discussion was always with these people who want to protect landscape, that it's a kind of economy where we produce electrical power. But nowadays, we have to build it to to keep, to have enough drinking water. I mean, that's really interesting because the... The context of climate change is part of the realities that we deal with now, like gravity mm. or mm-hmm. anything else. And, but there is something about the types of landscape that you're describing, which are mm. landscapes of necessity, landscapes of resource acquisition mm. and conservation, which is intriguing. I mean, I think, I think you pointed out, Gunther, that in the last 30 to 40 years, the amount of ground moved around by erosion mm. Mm. has been out paced by the amount of ground moved around by human action, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting point, which is that now the morphology of the earth Mm -hmm. is now more informed by Mm -hmm. our processes than Mm -hmm. the processes of erosion and and climate. And then it's really interesting because I'm thinking of all those compelling kind of landscapes, which Mm -hmm. say the landscapes of fracking or of open cast Mm -hmm. mining or of vast wind farms Mm -hmm. or of solar arrays or of any of these things. Mm almost undesigned, not aesthetically designed landscapes, mm-hmm. but landscapes which have evolved, or farming landscapes, mm-hmm. um, which are part of our aesthetic world, but which arise through incredibly pragmatic forces just allowed to visit themselves upon the topography. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested, do you see a space then in the years to come where those landscapes will become designed landscapes as mm-hmm. well as Yes, the problem is if, uh, when I'm talking with architects, for instance, they constantly use the term nature. Talking <laughs> with me, it's always a nature. And then I'm always saying, listen, can we not talk not about nature, but let's talk about landscape. This is a man-made nature. And it's, um, perhaps you know Timothy Morton, he's uh, English and teaching in the US. He's saying we should in the future discuss ecology without nature. But that's very difficult with uh, different disciplines. And, for instance, he is saying, you know, all these windmills, they have to be integrated into a landscape. It's just not possible because it's a wrong scale. It's never, it's not possible to integrate it into a landscape. But in the end, we have to accept it, that it's part of our landscape. And that's a slow process, but it will happen that we have to accept this not so nice features like windmills in the landscape and we will transform the landscape and we have to accept it um, 
when you see that uh, in Europe, for instance, Germany is saying within in 2028, they will n have no longer um, nuclear power, no coal uh, mining, whatever. But then that means they have to transform the whole landscape in a completely new landscape. And I think it's very difficult. So you can only integrate it, I, I know it from Norway or um, Denmark, in, in the sea, in the Atlantic, you can have windmills, windmill farms or whatever. But meanwhile, I see landscapes in Europe where you have windmills, you have solar power instead of um, agricultural farming. And when you drive through such a landscape, it's completely completely strange uh, so to understand so <laughs> power production is like agricultural production mm. now um, uh, very visible and it's not not a beautiful landscape but we have to deal with it in the future uh, that's a, and I think that's a real problem Do you think the role of the landscape architect should be a part of that conversation to perhaps influence how these new landscapes will be formed? Yes, but the problem is uh, the, that's a bad way. I'm only talking not yeah. worldwide, but from yeah. the, let's say from the Western world, the US, Europe, in the UK, that um, <coughs> the demand for landscape architects is constantly growing. The income, for instance, wow. in the US is much better than for the architects, yeah. but the number of students is not growing. It's, 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 a really, <laughs> it's a real problem that uh, young people are not so interested in landscape architecture and nobody knows. I didn't hear any explanation until now why it is like that. So, but the demand of the society is increasing and I have it in my office and uh, at the university. Everybody is saying it's so po important landscape but we don't have enough people working on it. That's my problem, personal problem. So we cannot find uh, well-educated people and just the sheer number of, uh, of people doing this job is not enough. And the number of students is going down. That's, I, I cannot explain it, but I have these complaints from the US and Europe everywhere. It's, well, uh, I personally grew up in Switzerland as well, yeah. but in near Montreux, yeah. but I didn't know landscape architecture <laughs> existed, yeah. but I am Dutch, and then through my design school I found out about landscape architecture, because that's the first internship, but that's the only time that's very late in mm -hmm. your process to find out about a subject, mm. which was actually what I was looking for all along, yeah. to approach this larger scale way of designing. It's interesting, isn't it, because I mean, Neil Hobhouse obviously is very interested in architecture, but he says that landscape architecture is the mother of architecture in a way, that before mm. you can understand architecture, you have to understand the, the landscape, the urban landscape, or whatever the type of landscape is. And that's interesting, because could it be then that as Europe densifies and our leisure time becomes more mobile and all of this sort of stuff, is that we are just dealing now with one urban continent mm. Mm. and the vast majority of that continent isn't buildings, it's landscape, mm -hmm. be it the landscape of pleasure or of production or of waste, mm -hmm. but landscapes. And so that's interesting in that context. I mean, I look forward to my wealthy landscape designing friends <laughs> allowing me to stay in their vast estates. Uh, but is, is, is that the context that you're seeing the demand for landscape architects coming from? Is this kind of everything now designed? Every mm -hmm. landscape has some form of regulatory or other action applied to it? Yeah, <clears throat> what's really interesting, if you go to any congress about urban, urban planning or so, everybody's telling you within the next, uh, uh, or let's say until 2050, 50% of the world population will live in city. I can't hear it anymore because I always when I ask, <laughs> and what happens with the landscape? And I can tell you, uh, for instance, in Europe, what happens? First of all, you have this strong urbanization going on. The first reaction is that we create national parks uh, and parks to protect the landscape. So I would say 
Germany, for instance, is more or less a park because everything is protecting, protected. Mm. And then we have so since people are leaving the, the, the countryside or the landscape, we have abandonment. And you have, especially in the Mediterranean countries like Italy, the strongest completely abandoned landscape because people are leaving the landscape or the countryside and living in cities. So you have abandonment. And then when I was a student, everybody was talking about the so-called Waldsterben. But then we had 1989, where all the coal mines and the coal product, uh, power production through coal was stopped in Eastern Europe. Mm. This acid rain stopped. So you have abandonment. And, uh, and afterwards, this forest starts to grow. And everybody told me in 2019, we will have, uh, it was in 89, we will have 50% less forest. Reality is we have 50% more, more for yeah. forest. And the next step is that wilderness appears because until last year, everybody invited me when I asked, what would you like to hear from me? It was always, how can you create this atmospheric dense landscape? And since since last year, everybody is asking me, wilderness. What about it? Was it started in Rome, and it wasn't. Uh, there was no video or something. Three days later, I was invited in Germany, wilderness in the city, and everybody showing me the High Line in New York, <laughs> in in Rome. And then I, then I was well prepared in for the German lecture. And I showed the high line before the landscape architects transformed it into a kind yeah. of garden, uh, whatever. And what does it mean, wilderness? <coughs> it's, it's only image-based. And so we are working in our office knowledge-based or image-based, uh, our design. But the reality, for instance, we have so many wild animals now coming to Switzerland because of this abandonment. And we, we really looked on a specific wolf coming. Everybody told me the wolves are coming, the bear are coming from Italy, but they are not coming from, they are coming originally from Italy, but through France. And then we really tracked this route of a, of a specific wolf and now um, living in Switzerland. It was just between urbanized areas and this abandoned and, re and reforested uh, landscape just in between. That means today this wolf is eating something in the wild and next day uh, the wolf is eating waste. That's interesting. So it's just in between uh, urbanization and directly connected to the so-called wilderness. And then wild animals are doing like that. But even in urbanized situation, why do we have so, we have around 600, 700 million pigeons living in cities worldwide. Why is it? It's very easy. Since the Second World War, we are throwing away our waste and food and on the street. So we have 700 million pigeons living in cities because of our waste. Mm. It's a very interesting aspect of urbanization and to look closely, what does it mean? And this wilderness now, everybody is saying, yeah, it has to be in cities, but let's say 20 minutes from the city center of Genoa, you have really a completely abandoned landscape, meaning you have villages, small towns in the middle of a forest. Nobody is living there. Mm. And what happens with this landscape? And that's my question to the landscape architects. I feel like somehow responsible for this landscape. What are we doing? These are still building zones, mm. finally. But what are we doing with this new landscape? And it appears everywhere that we have new landscapes. Since everybody is talking about climate change on the North Pole, we have completely new landscape appearing through the ice melting. And of course, this is really interesting. And everybody's talking about oil and gas, but in reality, it's about lithium, the rare earth. For our computers, we need these resources. And it's only possible to get this material through the climate change. So it's not the ice. In reality, it's because of the, of the resources, frozen earth. 
So, and you can go there by boat, since the ice is uh, melting. And, and in the end, I showed, okay, let's talk about wilderness. Where is wilderness possible? And then I show beautiful photos from wild horses, bears, wolves, the eagle, and so And then the last image is, it's Chernobyl. Yeah. We, we, we exclude ourselves, and then you really have beautiful landscapes. Yeah, my brother, <coughs> Moscow, and he, he's lived there for nearly 20 years, and, mm. but he talks about the hours driving now mm. through mm. the birch forest that's grown up through the collapse of all the collectivized mm. farms. And as an Irish person, because I think Ireland is still the only Western European country that population is lower than it was 150 years yeah. ago. So yeah. because of the Great Famine. So we're very used to abandoned towns, mm. abandoned mm. settlements in supposed wilderness. Mm -hmm. And this interaction of the ruination and this mm. kind of out-of-control regrowth mm. is a very compelling aesthetic, actually. It's a very mm. beautiful, resonant, atmospheric quality. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, and then this is probably too mm. much of a reach, But there is something remarkable about the types of landscape that you make. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. thinking of Novartis campus and mm -hmm. I'm thinking of these places. They are hyper real and they are, mm -hmm. they do seem to be concerned with almost disjunction, almost ruination or a lost mm -hmm. memory of something. Mm -hmm. So you're playing with time in those landscapes. Are you, mm -hmm. so is this part of the aesthetic landscape mm -hmm. that you're exploring mm -hmm. is to mm -hmm. bring that quality into the middle of these perfected mm -hmm. places? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a design before, and the big boss of Novartis, uh, in the last minute, he stopped it. And I really asked him, but why should I redesign it now? And then <coughs> this um, manager told me, you know, I asked the colleague before, what are the rules of, of the landscape you are designing? And um, and he couldn't, he, he didn't understand. And then he said, but listen, the music, you have a kind of repetition, rhythm and so on. What what is behind your design? And he couldn't explain it. And then I asked him, but what is your expectation? And then he told me, you know, most of the people working in my company are from the Anglo-Saxon work. World, so for instance, pharma is very much related to uh, research and so on, related to English people, and they expect to have a kind of um, landscape. So it's it's very <laughs> since I'm working in the UK, I understand it. British people have a kind of erotic relationship to lawn. Yes. They really want to touch Lon. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe, and I really, and he told me it wasn't about nature or landscape. He really told me I would like that these Anglo-Saxon people really like to leave the laboratorium wherever they work and to have a break in um, in a in a park, and it has it has to be somehow related to their culture, and. I, For me, it was easy to understand. I exactly knew what he meant, but I had to translate it. And then, after three weeks, they had to offer these people a picnic basket because they were all sitting on lawn, not on our benches, on chairs. They wanted to make picnic in a in a lands in an urban landscape. And in this sense, it's uh, it's related. For instance, you can <coughs> build this kind of walls with it uh, up to three, four meters without any fence. Because then the health and safety uh, person told me, you know, Switzerland is a very dangerous uh, landscape. So we don't need a handrail. <laughs> But for the English people, it's absolutely beautiful not to be protected yeah. because they are quite educated. And so and they, there was no accident and until today. But you can fall down three and a half meter, you know? and so this understanding and is really, really you you have to adapt it to this understanding of landscape or this relationship. And then I had to show it in front of 800 people and to explain what is behind my design. And I had to do it for the European Central Bank. I had to do it in for Novartis. Mainly English people were coming and listening. And then I thought, it's very difficult for me to explain what is behind this park design, because I don't want that you look through my eyes on, on the park. I 
really prefers that you look through your eyes you know, because then I showed some plants super poisonous but they don't eat it you know, and I know they don't eat it but then just to show and to have a, a discussion and it was a very good discussion with these people using the park but not um, not explaining what is behind so for instance I I took a daft fox and made photos and other animals from my wunderkammer and in the end somebody asked me but are these animals real and then I said yes but you wanted to know where they are alive and they are not alive but they live in, in night time in the park when you are not present I wanted to show you just and they saw a fox but in, in the photo it looks like real and then there was a really good discussion and this I learned from the artist Mm. How can you discuss about your artwork? It's it's much more difficult than about landscape because landscape everybody's invited to discuss it, and I think in landscape architecture and I'm explaining my students as well. You have to talk more about with people about what you are doing, but not explain the design, but what is behind your design, and that's not so easy for young people. I can understand. Um, to go a bit back to the animals that you keep referring to, describe the wolves and mm-hmm. the and now the foxes, and obviously we design for humans, mm-hmm. but ecology is a major factor that we have to consider when we design. How do you, do you, what is this process for you? Do you take them into grand consideration when you're designing a place or a landscape? Or do they more have to adjust to what you are designing, such as the boxes just exploring your Novotaris landscape? <coughs> I will talk a little bit today about it. <coughs> You're talking about sustainability. You know, when I was a student, you know, you have contaminated earth and all these disasters. And then in these days, it was easy to deal with it because we had the uh, rules and how to deal Meanwhile, the problem is so big that you have to accept it. We are working on a competition in Milan with OMA. It's completely contaminated. And then I ask the specialists, but what is, it, what is the problem? And whatever you ima- can imagine is in. It's <laughs> so, but you can only deal with it. I, I mean, <coughs> you can use it. It's... You cannot transport it and decontaminate it. It's just not possible. The problem in landscape architecture for me is <coughs> we don't have an economy in landscape. And I will talk a little bit about it today. Do you know how much you, you, you are worth? How, what's the price for you? Do, do you want to know from me? What's sure, your pr- surprise as a human being? It's, wa- it's 1.8 million. You know where? It's no. a lot. In Switzerland, it's 5 million, and in the US, it's 9 million. See this economy of a landscape. So in England, it's a, a calculation from the 70s to protect all of us against an accident, dead accident in the car. In the US, it's to protect you from an airplane crash. And in Switzerland, it's, pro- it's to protect you from natural disasters like avalanche or so. That, but, but what's interesting is that we have this kind of industrial standards to, to measure landscape. But in reality, what is the green belt in London? What is the worth of it? And it's only, if I ask this question, everybody's looking like on me like a real estate uh, manager. Mm-hmm. It's not so... Let's say an urban forest, what is, I wanted to explain it to a German uh, forest uh, person. He was so proud that he is producing so much wood and and, then the cost uh, of the forest. And then I asked him, but to retain uh, rainwater and to have very good rainwater for the city, in your case, and to have fresh air and to have all this, it's used as a park as well. This is not in your calculation. And that's a real pro- problem in landscapes, that we don't have an economy of landscape. And it's much more worse than just, it's not just a forest. If you, if you are using it for leisure, whatever, it's much more than just uh, what we see 
And that has to come, and that should be part of the landscape education. But it's not so easy to talk about economy and landscape. The quantifying of it. Yeah, yeah. I think now also people are reaching to buy public design, especially mm. in hospitals, to just also the amenity mm. value for mental contributions and mm. in healthcare systems. So also here, which they are trying to apply to the London plan, mm. is this way of measuring. Um, the value of a landscape and it might actually come into factor into the next local plan of London. Mm. So this is a method of also ensuring as um, just environmental mm. practices and I think slowly people are catching on, on to how to evaluate landscape but mm. probably this should be determined through people who understand how to evaluate it. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you think people will be researching or approaching more? Mm, I think coming years. that's really the theme of the future. Because when I mentioned this aspect in, uh, in a strategic discussion with my colleague at ETH, when I was talking about health, as you were talking now, they all have <laughs> eyes like that, because we all need new hospitals mm. because of the new medicine with uh, digital um, things you need in, in hospitals. So in Switzerland, every big hospital is completely transformed or <coughs> new, uh, we have new hospitals because of this new medicine. Then I'm telling my colleagues, uh, because they all see new jobs for new hospitals, but I'm talking about much more about health in a, so what uh, let's talk about food let's talk about uh, walking and uh, to take care on your health and if you <coughs> count it like that it's it's not 100 billion it's thousands of billions if you are uh, looking at this health in a really starting with food and uh, wellness and all these things and that's the future, I think. Uh, and people don't see it, how important it is. To, it is. So, so many <coughs> societies look at the American young people. They are all overweight, really heavy. And <laughs> not all. Not, <laughs> not all. I feel like to defend our... No, 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 no. But you see it, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's related to education. It's, uh, you see all the students on the East Coast or West Coast, it's, it's okay, but go in the, to the countryside and then you see, you really see the problem. It's, yeah, it's, it's it has to do with education and it has to do with the society and the, all the costs we have on this is really amazing. But isn't it, it yeah, I, I understand why one would try and work towards the value for landscape to free up space and budget to make it, but isn't there also a sort of kind of dreadful neoliberal narrowing there that would happen. I mean, I'm thinking right of, say, the commodification of all landscape, mm -hmm. where it isn't about just simply digressing to it. I mean, people now do mountain running, running. everything has some kind of goal-oriented engagement with the landscape, which I find, I do it myself, but I find it sort of troubling that that's the only way we would deal with it. And I'll give you just one example, which is that when I lived in Paris, which I did many years ago, and it wasn't a particularly brilliant time for me, but I had to mm. work in the Bibliothèque Nationale, a building that I didn't very much like, the mm. Perot building with the mm. four towers. And for me, it was always a folly of a building, you know, this kind of four towers and the books in the basement and the offices in the towers mm. and the whole game of the competition mm. I found very amusing. But I never was prepared for the courtyard Mm -hmm. which is completely sealed, which you never go into. So it has no use value. But every evening, vast murmurations of starlings spiral in, mm -hmm. in the gloom from all over Paris and spiral down to nest in those trees. And for me, that was just this part of the day that was utterly magical. And in a way, far more valuable part of Paris than mm -hmm. any of the useful landscapes I would have played tennis in mm -hmm. or cycled in or walked in. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's also an argument for non-useful, for, for just the pure aesthetic thrill of something either designed or accidental producing moments of great mm -hmm. power. Is there space? I mean, I don't want us to value that because we can't plan for it, but that's also mm -hmm. part of the reckoning of, of mm -hmm. what makes valid, valuable landscapes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think that's important to see that it's not only sports and leisure and you have to run or to do jogging, whatever. 
I think the other aspect that you just see is this invasion of these birds and uh, to see it. Uh, and uh, when I was with my students in uh, around Marseille, then I saw the smallest eagle um, species. And then I said to be somewhere a mast or something, a technical infrastructure for the nest. Mm. Then I read it like that. So what does it mean? And that's a problem that when I explain it to a very close friend, uh, my publisher, so we had a meeting in a wonderful studio in, on the, in the countryside, and then he said, well, let's have a glass of wine in the evening. And then I explained to him, what you see is completely different what I see. Mm. And his perception is complete. And he was really aggressive, saying, oh, no, I don't understand what, why. And then, okay, shall I explain you what I see? And I explained to him, you see, this plant is growing here. Do you see any window of these suburban houses? No. That's where men are peeing. And then, therefore, it's growing here. And it's because they are not yes, uh, seen. And then I, I really said was the first thing, and then the next, and the next. Afterward, he was really okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and then, please, can you can you explain what you see? And then he, it was very difficult for him because it was this kind of romantic or yeah. so. But um, and he was very shy in the end to tell me what because it was so romantic in a way, and I was really. A kind of scientist explaining it really very clear what I see, and it wasn't romantic at all. And he always said, But I always thought that you're a romantic person doing this job. Yes, I'm romantic, but I read it in a different way and I explain you what I see, but I can have it's beautiful, no? Not it, but I explain it in a, a kind of scientific way. Mm-hmm. And he, in the end, he was so, so really, he couldn't explain me what he sees. That's really, and I think we have to accept that everybody sees the world different. And that's to come back to the model. That's always interesting to have a discussion. What do you really see? And you have it in your university as well with this background of these people having a completely different uh, socialization. When you mentioned from your, you grew up in the French-speaking part of uh, Switzerland, but you are from the Netherlands. These Dutch people have an extremely different understanding of landscape mm. because the Netherlands are a completely artificial landscape. If they need more land, they just build it. And it's a completely, and I'm not criticizing, it's a, a different understanding of yeah. of landscape. But that's, and I don't want to change it. And living on an island like uh, England or Ireland, it's completely different to uh, this, this, this colonial aspect of uh, the UK. It has to do with the island. Yeah. Well, Ireland was an island, but we didn't colonize anywhere. So I don't think that all islands <laughs> colonize. But I, I do think it's really, that is very true. The fact that, say, what is it, 2% of the Netherlands' electricity output yeah. maintains the pumps. Yeah. Which is a completely different way of looking at the country, what, the, yeah. what, what a territory is or what a nation state <laughs> might even be. You know, that you require this amount of endeavor mm-hmm. before you actually hold on to it. I think it is very interesting. I do think there's something about the island as a bounded territory, which is both marvellous and also quite dangerous in a way, mm. because of its uh, its self definition and its um, insecurity for not mm. being part of something greater, mm. which is certainly the Irish condition and insecurity. Mm. And the other one is that no, but this is the universe, and this is the world mm-hmm. and everywhere else outside of here is simply to serve parasitically mm-hmm. this place in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. not to be so down on, on colonialism as a, an instinct <laughs> 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 yeah but it's interesting if you have a discussion with, with people and, and then the, the legal point is to protect landscape and then one reason is to say we have to pre- it has to be a productive landscape that means 
If we have this situation like uh, 1939 until 45, Switzerland was an island. So they had to produce everything mm. in, in the land. So, so now we have this rule that we have so much land for agriculture and everybody believes and is protecting it. But in reality, Switzerland is uh, 70% bigger in terms of agricultural production because it's import. But nobody knows it, but everybody believes we can really produce all the food inland and so, but in reality it's uh, 70% territory. When you are talking about the territory, it's 70% bigger than the real territory. And that's what I like to explain my students, when especially this expression territory or in French you have uh, the terroir, mm. you cannot translate it into English. No. What is a terroir? I always want to have a wonderful German or English translation. It's impossible to explain a landscape through terroir or territory mm. is, is uh, so everybody will agree. But what is the territory? And it's not a it's a real mm, boundary around uh, a perimeter and so on. All is to explain the students, but the territory can be much bigger or smaller. It depends what you're looking on. And, uh, and so since you introduced the territory, that's a very important expression to talk with students about what are we talking about and what is the scale you're relating to. And it's it's not so easy, but... And then it becomes... It Immediately political, immediately. Yeah. And that's a problem, uh, not here, but in Switzerland, it's a real problem. If you talk about it's political, political, no. <laughs> the Swiss are not interested to, to talk about politics. You know, and and the landscape and territory is extremely political. Yeah. And uh, that's for it's me. It's very emotive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because in terroir also refers in a way to the people. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of, it, it, there's something about the place, the territory, the person, their binds to that, which it, it can be great. Mm-hmm. It can be very destructive, mm-hmm. but is far, far, far more compelling than a lot of rational arguments mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just interested in that then. So if we go back to Novartis, where we're making a landscape <laughs> and it's a landscape of importation, mm-hmm. um, do you think then that there is, I suppose, that there is a richness then possible to the understanding of the people that might be transitory, mobile, mm-hmm. in their contemporary society, and actually a place for a new reading of what terroir might be or for what territory might be today? Mm-hmm. A more heterogeneous landscape, I suppose, a more um, collaged landscape, more like, I suppose, the people. Ah, that's a very difficult question. I was last summer, I was in East Poland or Belorussia, near the border of East Poland and Belorussia, and I saw this natural forest, uh, natural, you see, in myself is using this expression. You know this description by Simon Sharma about this landscape? It's a kind, he's describing it as a medieval landscape. And it's a medieval landscape. You have um, linden trees, oak trees, 400, 500 years old. And it's only because it was protected by the Polish uh, kings and the Russian Tsars and the last two Tsars. So people were not allowed to hunt and they were not allowed to cut a tree. And so so you have all wild animals, um, beautiful uh, biodiversity. It's really, uh, you can only see a little part, a little bit of the whole uh, landscape. But it's um, through this, um, (coughs) let's say, feudal system where the kings and the tsars, and it's still, nowadays, it's a beautiful landscape, a really beautiful landscape. And its reason is because of this political system uh, and uh, and it even survived the Germans co- coming back from Russia in the Second World War. But in a way, it's, for me, it was really strange because knowing this history, it was a bit, it was a bit like, uh, like in a zoo. Yes. So, it, so this experience, so, and we still... 
when we are working with with uh, landscape or let's say like Novartis, we always look a bit. It shouldn't be too too natural. One should really feel it's somehow it's um, constructed nature. So. It's like some for the Mazuala, in, in, for for instance, for this Madagascar forest in the Sioux of Zurich, I used a medieval kind of um, of forest as a because everybody in Zurich believes it's a beautiful rainforest, but it's it's a medieval forest. The image how it is constructed, it's a medieval European forest, but everybody believes it's so beautiful. It looks like a rainforest, but. The people are used. Uh, what is nice is to have um, different ages of trees, different layers. But the rainforest in Madagascar is just boring. When you walk, it's just <laughs> yes. boring. It's uh, it's only interesting for botanists. People wouldn't like it if I would produce it like that. So I use a European understanding of what is a nice forest and translate it into a tropical forest. And if I explain it to, when I do a guided tour, everybody say, oh, that's not nice what you're telling us. But it's a reality. It's a, before they really liked it, but if they know what is behind, they don't like it. <laughs> because it's a kind of European colonialism of a forest. But that's reality. What is the advice you give to your students or students at Kingston University? You have to learn plants, you have to learn plants, you have to learn trees, the name of the trees, the conditions they would like to have. That's my personal problem. Even in my office, if it's really come to the point, people don't know enough about vegetation. That's a real problem. Laura did have a good go at us. Yeah. I have to say, that's a real problem. And uh, I know the problem is that in, let's say, in in your study, bachelor, master, it's not possible to get on, on a real good point. You have to do it afterwards, constantly. And that's a real problem. Since my best designers are mainly architects, and they always, uh, they are always good, but then they need me for when it comes to what kind of tree is it. And they cannot even describe it when I tell them, listen, can you describe it? What do you mean? You're staying under a tree. Do you see the sky or don't you, you don't see the sky? <laughs> very simple things, very, so very simple and easy things. And you have to, <laughs> this knowledge is uh, that would be my only own, only this oh, advice uh, yeah but it, it, what's interesting there I agree I, I can completely certainly we work on small projects and it's always the people in other plants that you want to mm. work with but then there's also something else at work in your practice and in practices of landscape architects that we all love which is human nature or there's there's the scientist, sure, but you're not the you're not um, some person with a vast compendium of plants. Only mm-hmm. you do something else with that. There's a space for the scientist to make something autobiographical or something biographical or something connects with humanity or politics or society or culture on other levels. Mm-hmm. So there is another strand, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because we sort of haven't really talked about how that developed in you do you know what I mean I'm just curious about that because I know plenty of people who know their plants well I know a few mm-hmm. they don't do amazing landscapes actually mm, I know but that's a problem to bring the, what, what I explained so you have these uh, social sciences natural sciences and design and the problem is to bring all this knowledge you have to try to, to design with it. That's really difficult. For instance, I, my, my, my hobby is, and I'm, for instance, when I'm together with Dan Graham, always laugh about architects. So since he and myself, we are, the, you know, more than any other, uh, any uh, other person about architects outside of the architectural world, yes. about architects. So, so let's say then I'm in his library and then he's asking, Günther, what do you think about Zverev Fenn? 
So I asked my assistants, they all studied architecture at ETH, they didn't even know whose who's very fan is. Then I'm asking, but that's typical, no? I have an assistant, he studied at AA, and then asked my, my ETH assistant, Frederick Kiesler, I don't know him. But the AA students, Frederick Kiesler is super important at the yeah. AA. So it's it's really related to, to the university, which architect you know, and I'm much more open. And for me, it's really super interesting to discuss. I will never design a building, but it's super interesting to know architecture. <coughs> but it's a hobby. No, so it's <laughs> but it's a very nice hobby. And uh, but I will never set that's the respect I have uh, towards architecture. I know I know a lot, and I know how complex architecture can be. And but to understand uh, architecture is for me very important to to discuss with architects. So to have this knowledge about architecture. So. You might wrap it up. Thanks all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to Louise and to Gunther for their time and their insights. Over the last few months, a few people have got in touch just with some comments and some advice and also some appreciation. And it really is great to hear that. If you do want to connect with us, please do uh, either through our uh, Twitter feed by direct messaging us or by emailing me at the Kingston School of Art. Uh, It's very easy to find my details. It's really useful, actually, to help us uh, develop and refine what it is that we're doing. So please do get in contact. Before signing off, I'd just like to thank uh, Laura Evans, who works with me on this series of podcasts and of lectures, and to wish you well and see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.